Hello, and welcome back to the Historia Dramatica podcast. I'm your host, Willem Kahn. Thank you very much for listening. In the last episode of our series on the Ukrainian War of Independence, we brought the narrative up to May 1918. When we began the last episode, the acting government of the Independent Ukrainian People's Republic, or UNR, was in rather dire straits. In response to Bolshevik aggression, the UNR declared the independence of Ukraine on January 22, 1918. The leaders of the newly independent UNR rationalized that by declaring independence from Russia, they could secure diplomatic recognition and military protection from an outside power. Diplomatic overtures to Russia's wartime allies, the Entente, bore no fruit, and so the Ukrainians turned towards the Central Powers for protection. As it turned out, the Central Powers were rather amenable to the prospect of anomaly independent Ukraine. However, diplomatic recognition would come at a high cost. The Ukrainians were first compelled to conclude a separate peace with the Central Powers. After which point, they were also compelled to sign a series of economic agreements with the Central Powers that effectively subordinated Ukraine's economy to those of Germany and Austria-Hungary. In a very short period of time, the German occupation authorities grew frustrated with the inability of the Central Rada to deliver on what it had promised, namely the provisioning of foodstuffs and other materials that the Central Powers desperately needed for their war effort. They came to see that effective cooperation with the Central Rada was impossible, and so they sought to facilitate the creation of a new Ukrainian government that would not interfere with German prerogatives. The Germans found a potential strongman in General Pavlo Skoropadsky, a wealthy Russian-speaking Ukrainian-born aristocrat. The Germans cut Skoropadsky a deal. They would back his attempt to overthrow the Central Rada and extend diplomatic recognition to the new government that he would form, on the condition that Skoropadsky would accept a whole slate of terms, these terms included the ratification of the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, the permanent dissolution of the Central Rada, and the abolition of the All-Ukrainian Constituent Assembly. These terms, in the words of Ukrainian historian Taras Hunchak, effectively amounted to, quote, the outright surrender of sovereignty to the occupying powers, end quote. Nevertheless, Skoropadsky accepted these terms. On April 29th, Skoropadsky overthrew the Central Rada in what was nearly a bloodless coup in Kiev. He then proclaimed himself to be Hetman of all Ukraine, Hetman being an archaic monarchical title used by the Cossacks in the 17th century. The socialist political elements which dominated the Central Rada were quite understandably concerned at this development. They saw Skoropadsky's immense wealth and extensive ties to the old Tsarist regime as proof of his reactionary nature. Moreover, the devotion of the Hetman to the project of Ukrainian nationalism was also suspect. Skoropadsky and those who supported him did not really consider themselves Ukrainian, rather they considered themselves to be Russian. In short, according to John Reshetar in The Ukrainian Revolution, A Study in Nationalism, quote, These advocates of the republican form of government could only regard the hetmanate of General Pavlo Skoropadsky as an anachronistic political monstrosity, reactionary in both the social and economic spheres, end quote. Their fears about Skoropadsky would prove to be in part, well-founded. Immediately upon assuming office, Skoropadsky issued an edict officially proclaiming himself as the hetman of all Ukraine. In this edict, Skoropadsky harshly criticized the Central Rada. Quote, the former Ukrainian government did not achieve the political reconstruction of Ukraine because it was incapable of doing so. Disorder and anarchy continue in the Ukraine. End quote. It was for this reason that Skoropadsky, a self-proclaimed true son of Ukraine, had, quote, 
resolved to answer the call and to temporarily assume complete authority, end quote. The Central Rada was officially dissolved and all its decrees were abrogated. He promised above all that this government would safeguard the rights to private property. Seeking not to alienate the lower classes, Skoropatsky also made some vague promises of land reform and to protect working-class interests and to improve working conditions. Freedom of speech and assembly were to be recognized, albeit with some restriction. Freedom of worship was also to be recognized, although the official religion of the state was to be Eastern Orthodox Christianity. A further decree, issued later that day, laid out the specific form that Skoropatsky's government was to take. It was to be an absolute monarchy. Governing authority existed solely in the person of the hetman. Legislative authority was placed provisionally in the hetman's cabinet. As hetman, Skoropatsky had the power to make all cabinet appointments and to veto any and all legislation. Skoropatsky did run into trouble attempting to form a cabinet, however. His German handlers had instructed him to, in the interest of seeking long-term stability, to reach out for the support and even the collaboration of the Ukrainian nationalist elements which formerly constituted the Central Rada. The desire to reach some sort of compromise following Skoropatsky's coup was mutual. In early May, delegations of the three major Ukrainian nationalist parties, the Social Democrats, the Social Revolutionaries, and the Social Federalists, each sent a delegation to German General Wilhelm Gruner. They informed him that each of their respective parties would be willing to accept Skoropatsky as head of state on a temporary basis if the Central Rada was allowed to reconvene. The Germans were entirely willing to accept this, as they had agreed with the Austro-Hungarians at a meeting on April 24th that, quote, cooperation with the Central Rada was no longer possible, end quote. The Ukrainian nationalists walked away from this meeting empty-handed. Each of the three parties whose representatives had met with the general then decided that any of their members could accept a position in the hetman's cabinet, provided they first relinquished their party membership. As a result of these negotiations falling through, the cabinet, which took its final form by May 3rd, originally contained no men who were prominent within the Ukrainian national movement. The cabinet largely consisted of men of roughly the same demographic as the hetman himself, leading Ukrainian revolutionary Volodymyr Venichenko to conclude that the members of the cabinet were, quote, Ukrainian by blood, but Muscovite, read, Russian, in spirit, end quote. Ultimately, however, one nationalist with an unimpeachable reputation did join the hetman's cabinet, albeit at the cost of his membership in the Socialist Federalist Party, Minister of Foreign Affairs Dmitro Doroshenko. Being not fully cognizant of the economic and social consequences of the hetman seizure of power, Doroshenko had accepted a position in the cabinet with an honest intention to further Ukrainian national interests. However, as time went on, he realized that he had become a, quote, hostage from Ukrainian democracy within the camp of the enemy, end quote. No longer seeing any avenues by which he could advance Ukraine's national interests as he understood them from the domestic sphere, Doroshenko quietly resigned himself to his work as foreign minister. As the hetman, Skoropatsky adopted all sorts of trappings of monarchy. He was to be addressed by his subjects as Your Serene Highness, and he constantly referred to himself in the third person. He dressed every day in traditional Cossack costume, and carried a ceremonial dagger at his side. His official portrait adorned nearly all government buildings. As I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, these ostentatious displays of the hetman's authority had the effect of alienating the leftist nationalist elements, which formerly comprised the Central Rada. They came to regard the hetmanate as a, quote, 
anachronistic political monstrosity, which was reactionary in the national as well as the social and economic spheres, end quote. While these final two points are entirely reasonable given what we've discussed this far, it would be somewhat unfair to the hetman to claim that his regime was reactionary in a national sense. In fact, it was largely owing to this period of relative stability that was afforded by the German occupation that, during the reign of the hetman, significant progress was made in the development and promotion of the Ukrainian language, culture, and identity. As historian Taras Hanchak writes in his essay on the Skoropadsky regime, quote, in light of these demands, complaints, and charges against the Hetman's regime, one might form an erroneous opinion that during Skoropadsky's rule, no constructive contribution was made to Ukrainian statehood. Nothing could be further from the truth. Skoropadsky is all too often written off, both by his contemporaries and by the historiography of the period, as being little more than a German puppet with an insincere dedication to the nation-building efforts of Ukraine. While this characterization is not entirely unfair to him, it would be erroneous to fully accept the accusations made against Skoropadsky, and that his decisions were purely motivated by economic rather than national factors. In his analysis of the Hetmanate, Reshetar posits that, quote, the attempt to determine objectively whether economic interests or nationalist sentiment characterize the regime can only lead to the conclusion that the former appears to have taken precedence over the latter. Yet, the nationalist factor was present, and honest efforts were made. End quote. The honest nature of Skoropadsky's Ukrainianization efforts is evidenced, at least in part, by the fact that the hetman himself made a concerted effort to learn the Ukrainian language, of which he formerly had no knowledge. Upon taking power, Skoropadsky had assured the citizens of Ukraine that he had not assumed the heavy burden of leadership for personal gain, but rather so that Ukraine could remain free and independent. No doubt material concerns factored into this. Independence from Ukraine in this period meant independence from Soviet Russia, which did not respect the fundamental right of private property. In this way, one can interpret Skoropadsky's support for Ukrainian independence as being purely cynical. In his pamphlet, On the Current Situation in Ukraine, Vasil Shakrahai quotes the hetman as saying, quote, Formerly, I was fascinated by the Russian Empire. It is true. It was so beautiful and it seems so strong. But now, we must get used to the idea that the Ukraine's only course is independence. Poor Ukraine, believe me, there is no other way. End quote. Fundamentally, what separated Skoropadsky's vision of Ukrainian nationalism from that of the mainstream was that Skoropadsky embraced a vision of civic rather than ethnic nationalism. Doroshenko, one of the Hetmanit's most eloquent defenders, admitted that, quote, they, the Hetman and his supporters, understood the Ukrainian state in a broad, territorial sense, rather than in a restricted national sense. They were patriots in the sense that they were attached to the birthland, and at the same time wished to have it remain in the same form that would provide them with the maximum material and psychic satisfaction. However, they were not nationalists and did not share in that sense of exclusiveness which characterizes those to whom the nation is the supreme ideal." End quote. Skoropadsky's conception of Ukrainian civic nationalism is best articulated in one of the Hetmanit's most significant accomplishments, the Citizenship Law of July 3, 1918. This law owes its seemingly radical nature to the fact that it was based largely on a proposal that was drafted, but had not yet been adopted, by the Central Rada. Under the new law, Ukrainian citizenship was automatically conferred on any and all former Russian subjects who now resided within Ukrainian territory. Those who had not been formerly subjects of the Russian Empire could apply for citizenship, 
and would be granted it, provided they swore the following oath, quote, I promise and swear to be always true to the Ukrainian state as my fatherland, to protect the interests of the state, and with all my strength to further its glory and development, even to the extent of giving up my own life. I promise and swear not to recognize any fatherland other than the Ukrainian state, to sincerely fulfill all duties of citizenship, to submit to its government and all the authorities established by it, always bearing in mind that the welfare and development of the fatherland must take precedence over my own personal interests. End quote. This oath is massively significant in that it did not contain a pledge of allegiance to the person of the hatman, nor did it contain any references to language, ethnicity, or culture. Under the hetmanate, what made one Ukrainian was loyalty to the Ukrainian state. In this way, Ukrainian citizenship was conferred on many people who had not previously considered themselves as being such. At this time, Skoropadsky's Ukraine became a sort of safe haven for anti-Bolshevik elements who fled from the cities of Russia. Historian John Rezhitar paints a vivid portrait of Kiev during the Hetman's rule, quote, Kiev at this time was teeming with well-dressed Russians who had fled from the Bolshevik-dominated north, as had the Hetman's wife and children, who were no longer hesitated to wear elegant attire in public for fear of being labeled bourgeois. It was again possible to purchase expensive articles if one possessed money. The mother of Russian cities abounded with prostitutes and speculators, and its theaters and cafes were filled to overflowing. Many of the Russians who came south obtained employment in the various ministries of the Hetman's government. Some Ukrainian nationalists believed that 60% of the officers in the gendarmerie had served in the same capacity prior to the revolution. These persons desired employment not because they were nationalists, but because they could further their careers in a regime which at the time appeared to be a stabilizing force. End quote. The primary avenue by which the hetman sought to achieve Ukrainization was through the field of education. The widespread perception of the Ukrainian language as being a quote-unquote peasant dialect was a large hurdle to clear. Russian was the primary language of education in Ukraine even after the revolution, and most educated people of Ukrainian descent, including the hetman himself, continued to speak Russian as their primary language. The government first took measures to re-educate teachers in the Ukrainian language, which were followed by mandates that the Ukrainian language be taught in all primary and secondary schools. These policies began to produce results. By September 1918, there were 150 new Ukrainian gymnasiums in operation. Tertiary education would prove more difficult to reform. As a first step, the hetman had the Russian University of St. Vladimir in Kiev, rechristened as the National University of Ukraine, which occurred in a ceremony on October 6th. Other similar accomplishments of the hetman's regime were the creation of the Ukrainian Academy of Sciences and of the Ukrainian National Library. Skoropadsky's German handlers were, to their credit, quite supportive of the hetman's Ukrainization initiatives. It is worth noting their ulterior motives in this case. Whether or not Ukraine could truly be considered to constitute a nation unto its own was immaterial to the Germans. At an imperial conference held in the town of Spa, Kaiser Wilhelm II stated his own views on the matter. Quote, Ukraine is Slavic. So is Great Russia. The two will get together again. End quote. In this way, the Germans were no more true believers in the project of Ukrainian nationalism than the hetman and his ministers were. The German ambassador in Kiev, Baron Alphonse Mom von Schwarzenstein, wrote a report to Berlin on May 29th, quote, I consider it necessary to support in the Ukraine the fiction of an independent ally state, so long as it serves our interests. 
Such a policy is motivated by many reasons. It is necessary to consider the authority of the Ukrainian government among the population, which we shall undermine if we show clearly that it is merely a puppet in our hands, and that the government's decrees serve exclusively our interests. End quote. Similarly, Field Marshal Hermann von Eichhorn wrote in a memorandum dated June 17, 1918, quote, I believe it is of the utmost importance to us that the Ukraine becomes an independent state. The more the Ukraine differentiates itself from Russia by establishing order, the sooner the elements that lean towards Great Russia will develop Ukrainian national consciousness. End quote. In general, the development and strengthening of a separate Ukrainian identity was very much in Germany's strategic interests, as it would ideally prevent Ukrainians from desiring a reunion with Russia, thereby firmly keeping Ukraine within the German sphere of influence. Therefore, the Germans did all that was in their power to see this through. And yet, despite all the hetman's efforts, he could not appease the Ukrainian nationalists for two reasons. The first being that he failed to effectively Ukrainize the government, and the second being his agrarian policy, or lack thereof. To be fair to Skoropotsky, he was being forced to maintain a very difficult balancing act. On one hand, he had to provision the central powers with agricultural goods in order to ensure their continued support, without which his regime was doomed to fail. On the other hand, he had to do something to appease the rural masses and their desire for land to be re redistributed, lest he risk further alienating the peasantry and provoking a popular uprising. With regards to the all-important land question, Skoropadsky had inherited an absolutely disastrous situation from the Central Rada. As the conflict with Soviet Russia seemed more and more inevitability, the Central Rada under Mikhail Hrushevsky had enacted a bold and wide-ranging decree on land, with the hopes of winning a critical mass of the peasantry over to their side. The general points of the Central Rada's attempted land reform are outlined in the text of the Third Universal, which was issued on November 7, 1917. Quote, Henceforth on the territory of the Ukrainian People's Republic, the existing property rights on lands of the nobility and on agricultural lands of other non-toiling ownership, including deeded lands, monasteries and ministries, and church lands, are henceforth abolished. In asserting that these lands are the property of the entire working people, and that they are to be recognized as such without compensation to former proprietors. End quote. War swept into the region soon afterwards, and in the absence of a firm state authority, thousands of Ukrainian peasants rose up in armed rebellion against the landowning class that they felt had been exploiting them for generations. This was what historian Arthur E. Adams has termed the Great Ukrainian Jackery, Jackery being a generic term for peasant rebellion. Although peasant uprisings had been occurring in Ukraine effectively non-stop since the revolution of 1905, the complete breakdown of public order in February 1917 saw a marked increase in peasant unrest, as peasants, urged on by declarations from the Central Rada, such as the one previously quoted, began to expropriate agricultural implements, livestock, and other goods from landowners. In retaliation, these same landowners, backed by hired mercenaries, carried out punitive expeditions against the rebellious peasants, thus beginning a cycle of violence and retribution that would characterize social relations in Ukraine throughout the revolutionary period. It was with the German occupation in March 1918, and the overthrow of the Central Rada in April, that the Jackery began in earnest. On April 30th, Hetman Skoropadsky issued an edict ordering local officials to oversee the restoration of land and other property to their former proprietors. 
the punitive expeditions of the propertied classes, now sanctioned by the state, increased in frequency and intensity. Additionally, they were now joined by roving patrols of German soldiers, whose primary aim was to requisition as much food from the region as possible. German forces in Ukraine were constantly attacked by bands of armed peasants, and suffered remarkable losses at their hands. Estimates for exactly how many German and Austro-Hungarian soldiers were killed by Ukrainian peasants during this period ranges from 19,000 on the low end to 30,000 on the high end. Seeking to quell the peasant unrest, Skoropatsky enacted a provisional agrarian reform in July 1918, a reform which Reshetar characterizes as being, quote, too dilatory and too evolutionary to effectively address the prevailing conditions in the countryside, end quote. The Hetman's agrarian policies were also insufficient for the needs of the Central Powers. When Skoropadsky had agreed to ratify the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk as a condition of German support for his coup, he was also made to ratify the subsequent commercial treaties which the Central Rana had concluded with the Central Powers. In doing so, the Hetman had agreed to supply over a million tons of grain and other foodstuffs to the Central Powers before July 31st. When the Ukrainians failed to fulfill this agreement, a new agreement was concluded in September, wherein the Ukrainians agreed to export to the Central Powers 35% of their annual grain production. However, the widespread social disruption brought about by the past year's events considerably hampered Ukrainian agricultural production. It is difficult to find an exact figure for exactly how much food was actually shipped to the Central Powers from Ukraine during the period of the occupation between March and November 1918. Historian Ole Fedishin cites the figure of around 840,000 tons total. Count Ottokar Sernin, the chief Austro-Hungarian negotiator at Brest-Litovsk, cited a much higher figure, over 1 million tons. But neither of these figures accounted for smuggling, stealing, and unauthorized requisitioning of foodstuffs, which, according to Fedishin, would bring the total figure up to about 1.5 million tons. Needless to say that this put quite the strain on the Ukrainian economy, the official figures were still well below that which the occupation authorities had desired. Many in the German high command began to regard the continued occupation of Ukraine as unprofitable, as almost half a million German and Austro-Hungarian soldiers were stuck in the east when they were desperately needed on the western front. In any event, Although grain exports from Ukraine never quite reached the figure desired by the Central Powers, the lack of a serious famine in Central Europe in 1918 can be attributed, at least in part, to the Central Powers' occupation of Ukraine. Resistance to the Hetman's regime began to coalesce in the political sphere almost immediately. An early manifestation of said resistance was the convening of the Second Ukrainian Peasants' Congress, which convened on May 8th in Kiev which was promptly dispersed by German soldiers, and its leaders arrested. Approximately 12,000 delegates reconvened the following day in the forest on the outskirts of the capital, whereupon they adopted the following resolution, quote, We resolve to reject with contempt the Hetman's self-styled authority, which was created by the nobles, large estate owners, village kulaks, and capitalists, and which has no support or recognition from the democratic groups of Ukraine and to call the peasants to a decisive and uncompromising struggle against the headman's government. Furthermore, we resolved to insist that the Central Powers refrain from interfering in the economic and political affairs of the Ukrainian National Republic, 
and to protest against and to strongly condemn the active interference by means of military superiority of representatives of foreign powers in the class struggle in the Ukraine, the disparation of the Ukrainian parliament, and the establishment of the Hetmanate in Ukraine, which can only appeal to a small group of landowners and capitalists hostile to the Ukrainian National Republic and to all the achievements of the revolution. End quote. On May 13th, the Second Ukrainian Workers' Congress convened and adopted a similar resolution, which included demands for the transfer of all land into the hands of the peasants, the restoration of the eight-hour workday, and worker control over all industry, among other things. The Ukrainian Social Democratic Party and Ukrainian Social Revolutionary Party also held conferences at this time, where they denounced Skoropadsky's regime as being, quote, the result of the forceful usurpation of authority by elements which do not enjoy support in this territory, end quote. The month of May also saw the founding of the Ukrainian National Political Union, an organization that was founded to, quote, save threatened Ukrainian statehood and to consolidate all forces for the purpose of creating a truly independent Ukrainian state, end quote. The union was made up of various political parties, such as the Socialist Federalists, the Democratic Agrarians, and the Independent Socialists, as well as unions of postal, telegraph, and railroad workers. The Social Democrats and Social Revolutionaries also joined the Union, but only in a consultative capacity. One of the first acts of the Union was to, on May 24th, present a memorandum to the Hetman. The main charge laid out in the memorandum was that the cabinet was distinctly un-Ukrainian in character, and it pointed to the predominance of Russian cadets and Octoberists as evidence. The Union also criticized the Hetman for his dispersal of the Workers' and Peasants' Congresses, and accused him of, quote, pretending as though the revolution had never happened at all, end quote. In June 1918, Ambassador Mumm wrote in a dispatch to Chancellor Georg von Hertling in Berlin that, quote, The Ukrainian government and its people are very friendly to us at the present time. There are two possible approaches which we can follow in our policy towards the Ukraine. One of them is a ruthless exploitation of the country, regardless of ultimate consequences. The other approach is the creation of a viable political organism which, in close association with Germany, would become an important political, military, and economic factor in our Eastern policy in the future. End quote. Mum's optimistic outlook was hardly realistic, and was not shared by his peers. The increasingly brazen displays of opposition to the Hetman's government which had occurred throughout the spring and summer of 1918 had convinced most of the German general staff that their position in Ukraine was rather precarious, and that they did not, in fact, enjoy popular support. In an effort to win back the support of nationalistic elements within Ukraine, the Hetman, with the encouragement of his German handlers, had Foreign Minister Dmitro Doroshenko take measures to Ukrainize the cabinet. Doroshenko, as the only Ukrainian socialist within the Hetman's cabinet, was no doubt in an unenviable position. Having resigned from the Social Revolutionary Party in order to participate in government, he initially fell into a state of despair, realizing that he was, in his own words, quote, a hostage from Ukrainian democracy within the camp of the enemy, end quote. And he resigned himself to being merely a mute witness to the affairs of government. He attempted in vain to facilitate reconciliation between his former comrades and the new regime. This he sought to do by securing the release of three former members of the Central Rada, who had been sentenced to prison for their alleged involvement in the kidnapping of prominent pro-German banker Abraham Dobry. Relations between the Ukrainian nationalists and the Hetman's government reached their nadir in late July, when, on the 27th, Simon Petlura, 
former Secretary for Military Affairs in the Central Rada, was arrested. Doroshenko, who realized the grave implications that the arrest of such a popular figure within the Ukrainian national movement would have, immediately attempted to have him released. The hetman himself was in favor of having Petlura released and deported to Galicia for an indeterminate period, but these plans were shelved when, only three days later, on July 30th, Field Marshal Hermann von Eichhorn, commander of German forces in Ukraine, was assassinated by a Russian left SR. By July, the various strands of opposition to the hetman underwent the process of consolidation, whereby the organization previously known as the Ukrainian National Political Union was reorganized into the Ukrainian National Union, when the Social Democrats and Social Revolutionaries joined the organization in an official capacity. It was dedicated to, in its own words, quote, the establishment of a strong and independent Ukrainian state, a legal government responsible to a parliament, democratic suffrage on a direct, equal, secret, and proportional basis, and the defense of rights of the Ukrainian people and their state in the international sphere, end quote. Meanwhile, dissatisfaction with the Hetman's regime continued to mount. The summer of 1918 saw a number of terrorist attacks by left-wing perpetrators. On June 6th, a munitions warehouse exploded in the capital, killing about 200 people. A week after that, a fire of mysterious origin swept through a large portion of the southern half of Kiev, rendering thousands of residents homeless. On July 31st, another munitions warehouse in the city of Odessa exploded, killing an indeterminate number of people. The most significant terrorist attack of this period was, of course, the assassination of German Field Marshal von Eichhorn on July 30th. It is worth noting that the Field Marshal's assassin was, in fact, not Ukrainian, but Russian. Boris Donskoy was a Russian left SR and a sailor in the Baltic fleet. Donskoy and his two accomplices, also Russian left SRs, had been acting on orders from the party's central committee in Moscow. The left SRs also attempted to assassinate the hetman when he attended the field marshal's funeral, but the Germans were tipped off to this plot at the last minute and were able to foil it. This close call, however, does illustrate the tenuous position that Skoropotsky found himself in. By October 1918, it was becoming increasingly clear to all outside parties that the central powers were going to lose the war. While the collapse of the German and Austro-Hungarian empires would not necessarily result in the immediate withdrawal of the Central Powers forces from Ukraine, it would nevertheless severely diminish their capacity to prop up the Hetmanate for much longer. With this realization in mind, Skorpatsky, admittedly at Germany's insistence, agreed to further Ukrainize his cabinet. Secret talks with a delegation from the Ukrainian National Union resulted in the formation of a coalition cabinet in late October. However, instead of gaining the nationalist support he desperately needed if he was to cling on to power, the Union almost immediately disavowed the cabinet, declaring, quote, We do not regard the present cabinet in Ukraine as having authority, or as being the legal representative of the Ukrainian state. The present cabinet of ministers, made up largely of former officials of the autocratic Russian regime, alien to the people nationally and inimical to it socially and politically, has support only in the numerically small circles of large landowners and captains of industry. It does not and cannot comprehend the new basis of life which is embracing the whole world. End quote. Instead, the leaders of the Union began to plot an uprising against the hetman. Also at this time, negotiations between Ukraine and Soviet Russia for a conclusive peace treaty fell through, once the Russians realized how tenuous Skoropadsky's position was, thereby making a second Soviet invasion of Ukraine imminent. Skoropadsky was quickly running out of options. 
there was only one hope left, the Entente. Skoropadsky's German handlers initially disproved of the Ukrainians' request to seek diplomatic recognition from the Entente, but they came around to the idea that the Entente might allow the Central Powers forces to remain in the country as a peacekeeping force. With this objective in mind, Foreign Minister Dmitry Doroshenko was sent to Berlin in late October, where he met with the new German Chancellor, Prince Max von Baden. The Chancellor offered Doroshenko his assurances that German troops could and would remain in the country, even in the event of Germany's surrender, which was looking more and more likely by the day. Afterwards, Doroshenko traveled to Switzerland, where he intended to make contacts with representatives of the Entente powers. Only, once Doroshenko had arrived in the Swiss capital of Bern, he was informed by a French journalist that he was no longer the foreign minister. In his absence, Skoropadsky had dismissed his entire cabinet and formed a new one, staffed entirely by men who were elites of the old regime. Skoropadsky, whose dedication to the idea of Ukrainian independence was suspect from the very beginning, had decided that the best way to secure the Entente support was to resurrect the flag of federalism, that is to say, of reunion with a non-Bolshevik Russia. On November 11th, an armistice was signed between Germany and the Entente powers, thereby ending the First World War. Three days later, Skoropadsky issued an edict which reads in part, quote, We are now confronted with a new political task. The Allies were always friends of the old, united Russian state. Today, following a period of turmoil and dissolution, Russia has to adapt to the new conditions for her future existence. The old might and power of the all-Russian state must be restored on the basis of a different principle, that of federalism. The Ukraine should establish a leading role in this federation, since it was she who gave the example of law and order in the country. It was also within Ukrainian borders that the citizens of old Russia, oppressed and humiliated by Bolshevik despotism, found freedom and security. These principles, which I hope are shared by Russia's allies, the Entente, and which cannot be but viewed sympathetically by all peoples, not only in Europe, but throughout the whole world, should be the basis for Ukraine's policy in the future. The Ukraine should thus take the lead in the formation of an all-Russian federation, the principal goal of which should be the restoration of Great Russia." End quote. By issuing this declaration, Skoropadsky had hoped to win the support of the Entente, what actually happened was the final and complete alienation of all Ukrainian nationalists, practically none of whom still desired a reunion with Russia. Volodymyr Venichenko, who had his sources within the cabinet, was informed in advance of the Hetman's declaration and of his true intentions. He had been plotting an uprising against the Hetmanate since October, but in order for this uprising to be successful, the Union would need the support or the acquiescence of the German and Austro-Hungarian soldiers who remained in the country, and the support of the Sikh riflemen. The Sikh riflemen were the successors of a former military unit within the Austro-Hungarian army. The majority of its members were Galician in origin, and had volunteered for service after the outbreak of the First World War. Nearly all of the unit's recruits were also members of Ukrainian nationalist organizations, and as such, these men were completely dedicated to the Ukrainian national movement. They had first opposed the Hetmanate, and as such, the regiment was disarmed by German soldiers. However, they had been allowed to reform in mid-1918, as Skoropadsky sought to court favor with the Ukrainian nationalists. In late October, members of the Union made contact with the regiment's commander, Yevhen Konovalets, who agreed to back a potential uprising. Then on November 13th, the night before Skoropadsky was planning to issue his edict, Venichenko held a secret meeting with the other leaders of the Ukrainian National Union in a government office in Kiev. 
Those present agreed that the time was ripe for an uprising against the hetman. The declaration that he was preparing to issue the following day gave them ample justification for such an action. They agreed that the republic should be reestablished, and that until elections could be held, the government would be led by a five-man directorate, the most important members of which were Venichenko himself, who acted as the chairman, and Simone Petlura, who was chosen to represent the Sikh riflemen, thereby making him the commander of armed forces by default. Venichenko proposed that the Republican forces should rally whatever civilians they could to their banner, and immediately march on the capital. The others judged his plan to be too rash, and instead decided that the standard of revolt should first be raised by the siege riflemen at their headquarters at the town of Bielatsiskerva, just south of Kiev. Next, Venichenko drafted the Manifesto of the Directorate, an emotional appeal both to the Ukrainian people to rise up against the illegitimate regime of the Hetman, but also to the Hetman himself, to stand down and prevent further bloodshed. Quote, Who stands for the oppression and exploitation of the peasantry and of labor? Who wishes the rule of gendarmes and secret police? Who can witness with equanimity the executions of peaceful students by bestial Russian officers? Let him stand with the Hetman, and with his administration, for a single, indivisible Russia united against the will of the Ukrainian people. All others, honest citizens, Ukrainians as well as non-Ukrainians, must stand with us as a friendly armed force against the criminals and enemies of the people, and then all the social and political achievements of revolutionary democracy will be restored. The Ukrainian Constituent Assembly shall then strengthen them in the free Ukrainian land." End quote. From his stronghold at Bila Petlura issued his own universal, referring to himself as the quote-unquote Supreme Ottoman, or Commander, and calling on all patriotic Ukrainians to fight for the liberation of Ukraine from the tyrannical rule of the Hetman. With the benefit of hindsight, Venichenko later saw this action as a usurpation of his authority by the increasingly ambitious Petlura. At this time, the German Empire was convulsed with revolution. In fact, many German soldiers who had been left behind in Ukraine had begun to form their own Soviets. The leaders of the Directorate hoped that these soldiers, weary of fighting after four years, would remain neutral during their civil war against the Hetmanid. After some initial clashes between the Siege Riflemen and the Germans, the German High Command, or rather what was left of it, gave the order that Kiev was to be held against Pentlura's forces at all costs. A tense standoff ensued as the capital and its German garrison were encircled by Petlura's army. This state of affairs lasted a little under a month. Representatives of the Directory then made contact with the German commanders, and, on December 12th, an agreement was worked out whereby the German forces would be allowed to withdraw from Ukraine. Two days later, Directorate forces under General Konovalitz entered the city. That day, Hetman Skoropadsky signed the following Edict of Abdication, quote, I, Hetman of all Ukraine, have employed all my energies during the past seven and a half months in an effort to extricate Ukraine from the difficult situation in which she finds herself. God has not given me the strength to deal with this problem, and now, in light of the conditions which have arisen, and acting solely for the good of Ukraine, I abdicate all authority." End quote. Although he peacefully surrendered his authority, the Directory charged the former hetman with treason and absentia. A warrant was issued for his immediate arrest, and all his property was expropriated. Skoropadsky remained in the city for two days, after which he donned a German officer's uniform and escaped with the retreating German army with his family. Skoropadsky then took up residence in the town of Vansi, near Berlin. From Germany, he became the head of a network of Ukrainian emigres. 
He also, to his credit, refused to collaborate with the Nazis, despite multiple opportunities to do so. Skoropadsky eventually died in 1945, when he was fatally wounded by an Allied bomb near Regensburg, Germany. Skoropadsky left behind a rather muddled legacy. Conventional historians have a tendency to simply write him off as little more than a German puppet, but he nevertheless made several significant contributions to the Ukrainian national movement, loath as most Ukrainian nationalists at the time would be to admit it. I think John Reshetar provides a succinct summary of Skoropadsky's life and legacy. Quote, Although much maligned and neglected by many, General Skoropadsky cannot be denied the niche which is rightfully his in any consideration of Ukrainian efforts to achieve independent statehood. End quote. And it is on that note that I will leave things for the time being. With the Hetman and the Germans now out of the picture, it would seem as though the Ukrainian nationalists had won the day. But they would not have long to revel in their victory, as Ukraine would soon be dragged into the very civil war that engulfed the former Russian Empire. Tune in again in two weeks as we cover the next stage of the Ukrainian War of Independence, as Soviet Russia invades once more, and the Ukrainians have to contend with new factions such as the Poles, the Whites, and the Entente. If in the meantime you have questions, comments, concerns, or etc., please feel free to address them to me via my email, historiadramaticapod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can address them to me via Twitter or Facebook, links to both of which can be found in the episode's description. Also be sure to check out the eBay store and the Patreon page for ways to support the show. Anyway, until two weeks from now, this has been the Historia Dramatica Podcast. I'm your host, Will Connor, signing off.